Welcome to the latest Funds Fan Podcast. I'm Kyle Caldwell, your host and Collectives Editor at Interactive Investor. As usual, in the podcast, we have a Fund Manager interview coming up. But firstly, I'm joined by Tom Bailey, who regular listeners will know is the ETF Editor at Interactive Investor. Me and Tom are going to chat through a couple of Fund and Investment Trust news items. Let's start off with a campaign that has been launched by Interactive Investor regarding skin in the game. For those not in the know, skin in the game refers to how much of their own personal investments a fund manager or through an investment trust, an investment trust director has in the fund or investment trust that they either manage or oversee. It is not a requirement for fund managers to disclose how much skin in the game they have. And Interactive Investor is campaigning for change on this issue by calling for this information to be made available to retail investors. Interactive Investor has written to both the Financial Conduct Authority and the Financial Services Consumer Panel. It does seem odd to me that this information is not not available because, you know, as you, as you know, investment trust directors are required to disclose this. Yes, that's correct. While investment trust companies are required to disclose transactions by board members, there's no such requirements for, for managers. There's one exception, though. If an investment trust manager has a very large stake holding more than 3% of the shares, then they are obliged to report their shareholdings. But overall, it's only really journalists and fund analysts that are in there position of being able to ask a full manager whether they are eating their own cooking by aligning their interests with shareholders or unit holders in the case of funds. When I worked at The Telegraph, it was a question that I used to ask for The Telegraph's Funds of the Week series, which was a video interview and a written article with a full manager. You see that question asked a lot, um, but when you ask a question, I always wondered, do you ask the fund managers to spell out exactly how much they have invested? We did ask that, but um, most didn't want to go down the route in terms of stating the exact figures. Um, most answered by saying it was, you know, formed a significant part of their pension or went further than that by saying that all of their wealth or their property was tied up in the funds or investment trust that they managed. I mean, overall, the vast majority that I interviewed did say that they had personal investments in the fund. There were a couple that didn't, um, which did surprise me. Sometimes this was when they ran several funds. Um, the fund manager tended to invest in one, one or two of those funds rather than all of them. Um, I mean, one of, the, one of the main reasons why I invested for my son in Aberdeen Asia Standard Focus Investment Trust in his junior ISA was because um, I was at an event and the fund manager, Hugh Young, said that um, that particular investment trust was the one that he had the most personal wealth in. Um, Hugh Young um, oversees a number of funds and investment trusts. So him saying that really did sway me to invest in that investment trust for my son. So in regards to directors of investment trusts, the, the latest Skin in the Game report that um, Investech Securities publishes showed the majority of board members do have their own money in the trusts they oversee. Yes, uh, the majority do. Um, only 5% of investment trust chairs have no investment in their company I mean, I think those 5% should invest, um, but it is a low percentage. Um, a total of just under $4.8 billion is held by boards and um, fund managers who have disclosed their personal investments. 
this is a sevenfold increase compared to a decade ago. So it's certainly going in the right direction. Um, and, you know, by having skin in the game or eating your own cooking, however you want to call it, it has become more prominent. And it is something I think shareholders would expect to see. Um, check out ii.co.uk for our write-up of Investec Skin in the Game report. The second news story is the potential new investment theme of space exploration. Last week, there was an announcement of a space-themed investment trust, which came hot on the heels of the launch of the Yoda ETF. Tom, could you run through both of those um, that have recently launched or proposed to launch? Sure. So last week, Seraphim Capital announced that they were going to be listing an investment trust on the London Stock Exchange called Seraphim Space Investment Trust, and it's targeting um, an IPO of 100 million. Um, so this trust appears it will mostly focus on investing in privately held companies that are involved in in, in the commercial uh, side of space in some way. Um, so the few companies that's revealed so far um, that it expects to be in the portfolio, um, which were previously held by other Seraphim funds, uh, they're all privately listed. Um, and given the nature of investment trust with their fixed pool of capital, uh, close end, everything like that, uh, it seems likely that will continue to be its focus, especially when you consider the fact that many of the, uh, you know, it's, it's a very uh, uh, cutting edge area of, of, of business. So it, many of the companies won't yet be public. Um, and and so I can imagine that that's going to be a very uh, kind of niche trust. Um, you will probably see it fluctuate on different uh, premiums and discounts because we don't really know what the underlying value of the holdings are regularly because of them being privately held. Um, so it appealed to some investors. Um, there's another option, though, if you do want to invest in space, but you're not not keen on this kind of more um, startup venture capital approach. Um, so this, uh, as you said, there's a Yoda ETF, which uh, has been launched by Han ETF. So its real name is uh, Procure Space ETF, and it's similar to the one that already trades on the same name in the US. Um, but its ticker is Yoda, so you can kind of, you'll expect to hear it referred to much more as a Yoda ETF. It's a much more catchy name. So this ETF tracks an index of, I think, around 30 stocks deemed um, to be set to benefit from the increased commercialization of space. And you know, right now, that, that's mainly space satellite operators, um, as well as manufacturers of rockets or other hardware components of, of space exploration. But the ETF expects to gain um, increased exposure to other areas of space, uh, such as resource extraction, which obviously is very far in the future, likely, but more, more, more uh, likely, sometimes soon, is, is space tourism, and it already has um, Virgin, Virgin Galactic in, in its holdings. So it's kind of already got a little bit of exposure to that. But as that space develops, and the pun intended, then you'll, you'll see more of that. Maybe I knew you wouldn't resist the pun. Um, <laughs> it will be interesting to to see how popular both of those will be with investors and how they perform. Um, the proposed investment trust launch has a very ambitious yearly return of twenty percent over the long term. What's your view on space as a potential new investment theme? Yeah, so it's new in a way in terms of being able to get direct access to it. But you can see historically, lots of people talking about space as a, as a, as a theme for, say, stock picking, uh, or even uh, kind of why to invest in aerospace and defense. Often these kind of, uh, you, you can see articles from 10 years ago, five years ago, talking about this, um, of shares, uh, say, satellite operators or, or in the aerospace and defense sector because you know, they build rockets. Uh, in recent years, has become, there's obviously, there's much more increased focus on the commercial opportunities of space, um, at, particularly, as I mentioned, with satellite operators or, or the hardware companies. And you can see, you know, Scottish Mortgage um, has tapped into this theme. A recent update from Tom Slater for the shareholders in the, in the trust spoke about uh, some of the new holdings that are related to this. Um, 
But I suppose both with the Space Trust and the ETF, um, investors are now able to access this theme in a much more pure play, whereas previously they had to rely on um, you know, stock picking or, or, or trying to uh, buy a trust with a small, a small holding in, in a space company, which obviously is not pure play and, and is not going to make much of a difference in your portfolio. We will, of course, keep readers and II customers informed of the latest developments and whether the proposed investment trust launch receives the £100 million it's hoping to raise for liftoff onto the stock market. Our full manager guest for this episode is Richard Hallett, full manager of the Marlborough Multicap Growth Fund, which is a member of Interactive Investors Super 60 list. So, Richard, the fund invests in UK companies of any size that have good growth prospects and with a sustainable competitive advantage. So, firstly, what is the current split between large cap, mid cap and small cap? And secondly, how do you define what a sustainable competitive advantage is? I think the first point to point out is that the Morgan Multicap Growth Fund, um, with it, what we do is we really try to identify the best UK companies, irrespective of their size. Um, but having said that, um, the split as we see it is uh, approximately 45% in large cap companies, 35% in the mid cap sector, and 20% in small caps. And that's if you define small caps um, at the threshold level being at about one and a half billion pounds sterling. Um, but when you think about our investment process, um, um, and when what we really spend a lot of time thinking about is, is the fact that um, precisely because we see macroeconomic cycles as almost impossible to forecast correctly on any consistent basis at all, um, the key thing is to find companies that can grow irrespective of what's going on in the wider economy. Um, and one of the key factors that we look for to give companies this kind of ability is what we call the sustainable competitive advantage. And we define that as um, an, an enduring business edge that really gives a company an ability to grow faster than competitors and take share really irrespective of the economic backdrop. Um, so the kind of factors that come into play here to, to give a company this competitive edge um, typically is some sort of innovative new product, which is just hard to replicate, um, a really great or experienced management team, um, a lot of spend on research and development, or indeed some sort of brand that's been built up over many years and, um, and its customers really do uh, have an affinity for. But more often than not, what we find is that the companies we like have a combination of several of these factors that give it this sort of very compelling business edge. And an example of this may be a company called um, Network International, which is the clear leader, certainly in terms of size, um, in the provision of digital payment services in the Middle East. Um, and digital payments really is a scale business where the largest player has um, an ability to offer a broader range of services, solutions, and um, in-depth analytics to its customer base. Uh, alongside significant cost and efficiency advantages. You also look to invest in companies that are benefiting from a long-term structural growth trend. Could you name a couple of those uh, trends that are common across the portfolio? Sure, yeah. I mean, structural growth trends are very important to us. And what we mean by a a structural growth trend is really um, 
uh, a powerful shift in uh, long-term global behavior that can work to the benefit of the businesses operating in those sectors. Um, so um, the first trend example may be the, the sort of global exposure, explosion in data that's created, captured, and consumed globally. Uh, and believe it or not, it's reached 64 zettabytes in, in, in 2020, with each zettabyte representing a trillion gigabytes. So it's a, a truly immense amount of information. Um, and we've got actually plenty of companies within the portfolio benefiting from this trend. But a good example is a company called Experian, um, which is benefiting from the growth in data analytics. Um, Experian is one of ma three major global credit bureaus and has a huge sort of data set or consumer data which it mines and helps to provide analytical services to banks and other corporate customers. And it is precisely this sort of rich data set which sets it apart from competitors and is really difficult to, um, for, for competitors to muscle in and try and sort of um, uh, replicate that data. And another trend may be the sort of uh, the increasing amount spent on healthcare worldwide, and this is predicted to reach nearly nine trillion dollars uh, in this year. Um, and it really is growing because of aging populations, rising incomes, and and also new treatments. Um, something which we don't think is really going to change. An example of a stock we hold here is Smith and Nephew, which is a maker of um, surgical procedures and, um, and devices. Um, for hip and knee replacements, and it is one of a few global players in this area when it's really innovating and investing in improving its product range, and, and in addition, using strong sort of cash flows and profits to make acquisitions. In terms of performance, the, the fund has a strong long-term track record. It has, however, underperformed the average UK or companies fund since the start of last November. Has this been down to the cyclical rally that has taken place since those vaccine breakthroughs were announced? Well, I mean, um, as you can imagine, that's played on my mind a bit of late. Um, but what I really uh, have to say on this is that, you know, we're not ones. Uh, we really are not ones for sort of jumping onto the latest sort of style bandwagon. Um, I mean, that's a strategy we see for, uh, you know, befits sort of shorter term traders. And we prefer adopting a much sort of longer-term approach um, and benefiting from the cumulative effect of, of longer-term earnings growth. Um, and the risk, of course, with adopting this strategy is that we go through shorter-term periods of underperformance like the current one, especially where the market rotates into more cyclical stocks. But having managed money um, over 25 years or so and been through several cycles, um, we do see that this sort of move into cyclical sectors tends to occur really at the earlier stages of a, of a business upturn. Um, but our, our focus on quality stocks really has served us well through last year and particularly through the turbulent periods. Um, but this year, as you've rightly noted, um, investors are scenting recovery and they're really and they're moving into the really harder hit sectors like banks, commodities and industrial companies. And it's these beaten up companies um, that have done well of late with the share prices rising. Uh, and investors have been um, rotating out of some of these sort of more uh, stable sectors that have served us well through the downturn like technology. But we're sticking really with our quality company approach. 
um, uh, precisely because we feel it's just incredibly difficult to make the right call on what's going to happen in the global economy and which companies will benefit um, when. Um, so we prefer to stick with quality businesses which can really grow irrespective of what's going on in, in the economy. Of course, um, quality stocks will attract higher valuations, but you know the sell-off has meant that um, they've come off a little bit and they're, they're trading at much attract, more attractive valuations. Um, so, for example, we've added to some of our key holdings here, like Future PLC and JD Sports. Uh, and, of course, there's risks about how all companies evolve and emerge from this pandemic. But we feel that those sorts of stocks are really well placed to benefit not only in the longer term, but also the shorter term as the economy starts to recover. So, so when... Um, COVID-19 restrictions begin to ease in the UK and um, hopefully uh, next month. We had the, uh, de the delay in Amsterdam a couple of days ago. Do you think the portfolio and um, the short-term performance will pick up? Uh, well, it's a good question. I mean, um, of course, you know, we're in that camp as well and we're optimistic that the global economy can recover and should gather strength as the vaccination programs sort of gather momentum and the effects of the pandemic recede. Um, but with a Brexit deal signed now, um, we really do see UK equities as being undervalued um, compared to um, comparators overseas. Um, and we're also seeing, you know, really sort of high levels of merger and acquisition activity in the UK market, which demonstrates that external investors, you know, see value over here. Um, but in terms of our positioning, we're sticking with our strategies, as I've said, you know, backing quality companies, which we think will benefit from these longer term growth trends. Um, and, it, and we really do believe that these companies should be able to attract more customers and grow their businesses over time. And that's really irrespective of what's going on in the wider economy. Um, and one of the, so the risks we see um, in terms of the sort of more recent pickup in economic activity um, um, is the reawakening of inflation, as you know, we've seen huge stimulus spendings, uh, rebounding of consumer demand and supply bottlenecks. Um, however, our thinking about this is that we believe our companies, which have this competitive edge, which I've spoken about before, have strong relative pricing power against their rivals. So in a, a modest inflationary environment, they should be able to sort of edge up prices to offset these, these, these cost pressures. Um, you know, but whilst we say we're backing growth stocks, we're also backing companies um, that not only have these longer-term growth trends, but really can benefit from the shorter-term revival as well in the in the opening up of the economy. Uh, an example includes you know, JD Sports, which I've just mentioned a bit earlier. You know, it can benefit from the acquisitions it's made in North America and also the opening up of its uh, well-invested high street uh, shopping estate. And an example, another example is J2.com, which is a major player in the UK budget holiday market. It's incredibly well funded compared to its competitors. And we think we'll really benefit from the huge pent up demand as and when sort of borders reopen. And the final question I wanted to ask you relates to the funds um, overseas exposure. UK funds are able to invest a maximum of 20% overseas. Some funds do make use of this, while others stick solely to the UK. The Marlborough uh, Multicap Growth Fund has 10% in the US. What's the thinking behind this? Yeah, good question. Um, I mean, I, I think the key thing 
to focus on is that the Marlborough Multicap Growth Fund really is prim primarily a UK fund, and our focus is in the UK. Um, and we only use this um, overseas flexibility when we're looking at um, a strong sort of structural growth trend, um, like we talked about before, where we've identified a best-in-breed best company benefiting from this trend, but it isn't listed in the UK. Um, so most of our overseas holdings are actually in, in, in the technology-related sector, where we see sort of limited opportunities, particularly in the larger segment of the UK market. Um, an example might be Intuit, um, which is the largest provider of accounting software in North America. Uh, its products are, are really innovative and cloud-enabled, and they're regularly updated. Um, and it's growing just far faster uh, than competitors and taking share from um, companies like Sage, which is the incumbent player listed in the UK. Um, and another example is Microsoft, um, which owns Azure, one of the fastest growing global cloud computing software platforms. And it's taking share faster than a lot of other players, including AWS, which is owned by Amazon. Um, and cloud computing as a structural growth trend. Um, and what we're looking at here is um, a market that has a percentage of a five, $5 trillion um, global enterprise software market we see as being less than 10% converted. So there's many, many years of runway left to grow into. But we've got to remember, though, that the lion's share of the fund is, is focused on UK-listed stocks. Um, the UK really is, is home to some exceptional world-beating companies. And we only hold 45 to 60 stocks, so it's a really it's a conviction approach. And our multi-cap strategy gives us the freedom to roam across the market spectrum and only really selecting those companies with the strongest potential. Um, and I think the last point to make is that we really do believe the UK market is, is undervalued at the moment compared to other global markets. And this is providing lots of interesting opportunities um, at this precise point in time. Richard, thank you for coming on the podcast. That's all for this episode. I hope that you've enjoyed listening. Please like and subscribe. And of course, you can find lots more investment insight and ideas at ii.co.uk. We'll be back in early July. <laughs>